This is Colonia Cast, episode 45. Today we're joined by Charlie Moorcroft, who is the founder of the Moorcroft Conservation Foundation. Uh, Charlie's doing some great work with a variety of species. Uh, he works with a lot of turtles and tortoises, and uh, we're really excited to talk to him today. Thanks for coming on, Charlie. Thanks for having me. I've, uh, I've looked at your past lineup, and it's pretty intense, so hopefully, uh, you know, I feel honored to be here, and thanks for having me, and um, hopefully we can, you know, get something interesting out there. Yeah, it's exciting because it's sort of a different line. We haven't we haven't uh, talked to as many people working with turtles, so this will be really exciting. Wyatt, you want to get us started? Yeah, so we usually uh, start off the episode by asking everybody the same question. What is the pivotal moment in your life that got you interested in turtles and tortoises? Who goes first? The guest? Yeah, you're, you're, yeah we're interviewing you. So. Clearly, I'd be last. <clears throat> feel like the old guy. Um, I guess the, the pivotal moment for me was as a kid, uh, family vacations. I come from a large family. We would uh, take time in the summer, different parts of the year, and it would always involve lakes or streams or water, rarely the ocean, even though I lived close to it as a kid. Um, family would go fishing, swimming. I was more interested in wildlife and turtles were something I just always looked for and um, enjoyed finding, enjoyed studying, watching them, sneaking up in them. I didn't really catch them or bother them, but they were always very, they were probably the highlight of the trip for me. It's interesting. It's that's how a lot of people, I mean, in, in a lot of different capacities, working with turtles have started is that experience in nature. Uh, as a kid, and then that kind of builds over time. I, I'm sort of curious initially, uh, we'd like to, it, it's interesting to get pe different people's perspective on this, but now you, you work in a conservation capacity uh, sort of a lot of the time, and, and I'm, I'm curious why sort of holistically for all animals, but turtles in particular, people should care. You know, that's a, a really broad question, and it's a good question, and I, I'm not sure I can answer that. I, I can just speak mostly for me. Um, so I guess I think of myself as a keeper, really, as, as a private keeper, and then as a, someone involved in preservation, probably more than conservation, although conservation is uh, hugely important. Um, I don't get to be that involved with it other than funding some initiatives that, you know, can do better things than I can. But I think, I mean, we all have to take a look at, at what's important to us and what's of value and what's happening with the world and the planet. And uh, hopefully, you know, remind us of what makes us compassionate and, you know, get outside and do stuff with nature and, and remember the wildlife doesn't really have a chance unless we're careful about it. Right, that's well said. I, I, I'm curious too. You brought this up, and this seems to be something that circulates a lot, especially on the sort of captive side of of, uh, of turtle work and, and turtle conserva conservation. Is the semantics behind it, uh, the, the distinction between preservation and conservation? Uh, curious if you could speak to that a bit. I, there's sort of a nuance there, but. Uh, curious to hear what your perspective is on that difference. Well, I'm, I talk a lot, so fasten your seatbelts. I started out just as a keeper, and I, I enjoyed, I, I did a lot of research, and I wanted to be very thorough, 
and I was finally at a point where I was living full-time, long-term enough in an area with the great climate that I was able to add some uh, a different collection of animals. So I started with cherry heads after a lot of research and then slowly added on other things. And then in the, in the process of really studying how to do it well, I went to different organizations and, and actually learned myself the difference between conservation and preservation and really was able to identify that I'm preserving some rare, uh, which is a weird word, endangered, you know, on different level uh, species of animals, which are exciting, but I'm not conserving them in the wilds, you know, by having a, a group of, say, Egyptian tortoises in, in <coughs> reformed garage, revamped garage in Florida, I'm not conserving anything in the wild. And, you know, are we preserving animals in captivity? Yes. Do I breed them? Yes. Um, do I think, do I make myself feel good and maybe lie to myself to a degree that I'm making a big difference in the world? I, I try to, I'd like to, but I don't really know what, what is working. You've been to Madagascar. You've actually had boots on the ground and seen what real conservation is. I have a couple of radiateds. That's, that's nothing compared to, to what you've been able to do. Although maybe at some point there'll be more radiateds in preservation groups and captive groups. And insurance colonies than there will be in the wild and so i think there's it's a complicated question and i'm not sure i made it more complicated or gave any answers i mean it it, it is interesting that it a lot of people keep animals because they have an obsession with collecting and that's sort of what it is but people like yourself it's it's along the lines of uh doing something that's beneficial for the species and it's not driven by something that's uh, probably an unhealthy obsession. So I think that it, it does fall under that umbrella of conservation. Uh, even if you're not necessarily doing something in the wild, it, it's not necessarily doing anything about the, the driver of the decline of a species, but it's, it is preserving. So I think that that is a, a good distinction. The, the semantics behind it is interesting. Uh, maybe we can sort of transition I, I think that provides a decent baseline for the, the philosophy behind sort of what you're doing uh, but but the Moorcroft Conservation Foundation has a, a, a kind of uh, wide-ranging I guess it's, it's sort of multifaceted goal uh, maybe you can explain sort of the mission statement and and sort of what what the goal of MCF is and the work you're doing all right, Lon, this is going to be a little bit of a lengthy one, but it's actually, I think it's interesting. Hopefully at least one other person will. Uh, my main job, my career is um, I'm an equestrian, uh, whether it's riding or training animals or teaching uh, children, adults, you know, people to ride and show. That, that's my main uh, career. Um, I was involved in some great projects and uh, different foundations and different committees and the governance of our sport. And slowly that kind of changed and evolved um, into me taking a little bit of a break and stepping away. And also at the same point being really immersed and living in South Florida for many years. And it just was a natural kind of uh, morph into wanting to give back, wanting to uh, raise money and raise awareness and, and help educate and just kind of get the story out there. I was involved in some other foundations and, and uh, amazing opportunities like that. So we just decided, a small group of us decided to 
uh, start a, a conservation foundation. And uh, Anthony Pierleone was involved in the conversation initially um, and some really close friends. And, and the point was to raise enough money. Uh, I'm surrounded luckily by a lot of wealth. Um, I'm, I'm lucky enough to do this at the highest level. And I live in a town that um, is one of the most populated horse you know, communities. Um, and there was a, an opportunity there to kind of broaden that out. And uh, <clears throat> I actually spoke with a sports psychologist about the direction was going in life. And she basically said, you, there's so many other interesting levels to what you're doing and you kind of spare people from it, don't. So that was a good moment to just get what I was doing out there and talk about my collection and not you know, show up at work and pretend I didn't have anything else in my world. So anyway, we <clears throat> started the foundation. We've raised a lot of money. I, I do have a really cool collection. I was able to um, acquire a lot of animals through great partnerships and friendships. And I use those as, as often as I can to help educate. Um, the foundation does not fund what I do. Um, you know, I use it as the educational, you know, as different buckets that, that gets dropped in the educational bucket. The money we raise goes to other organizations, like you said, that are out in the wild doing, doing better uh, or in captivity. And definitely not just turtles. You know, turtles are not for everyone. Luckily, they're for us. But, um, you know, we tried to really go broad and hit different, uh, as many different species, as many locations in, in the, you know, locally now and internationally as we could. Right. That's, that's kind of the multifaceted aspect is you're doing sort of funding conservation and, the, but you also have sort of an education side and that's, that's your collection. Uh, that, that's real inspiring to me. I mean, you, you'll send me and I follow the Instagram pages and anyone listening should, uh, and we'll link those, but there's a lot of cool pictures on there with, with kids that come over and experience the animals. And I think that's one of the most powerful things you can have for is getting young people involved because for all of us here doing this now, that was the case with us. Mm -hmm. uh, we can probably all share our individual stories too even, but it, it's inspiring to see that when, when you have a group of young people there hands-on with an animal, there's no better way for them to learn. Uh, I, I, those stories behind that are, are inspiring to me. I, I'm sure there's some moments you've had there where there's been a, a large impact. You see a, a kid interact with a, a, an animal and have a really life-changing moment. I'm curious if there's any moments that stand out in your mind, uh, encounters like that. There are uh, lots of different moments. And, and when you watch the faces of the kids when they're touching, you know, a baby turtle or they're holding one or, yeah, that's actually a snapping turtle and it's got a cool story. The mother was hit by a car and it was killed and I've got crazy friends who were able to salvage the eggs and hatch them and send me one to raise. So, you know, to, to, to just watch their eyes and, and watch how they evolve through the process of visiting here. And you, you guys, several of you have been here. It's, it's not really remarkable to me. <clears throat> it's a very small place. Uh, it's a it's a vast, you know, I don't know, it's a bunch of different species, but it's done in a way that's manageable. I don't have help. I just do it myself. Um, and we don't have that many people come, uh, not as many as I would like, but, you know, life gets in the way, jobs and stuff. The other thing I have done is uh, reached out and have a pretty good rapport with a lot of other keepers. And we've 
been able to uh, even visit like Cannon uh, Harkin. We took a bunch of kids up there and just walked around. And, uh, you know, it was an interesting experience because a lot of them knew him from YouTube and were able to go to his house and meet him through my friendship with him. Uh, Mark McCarthy is another great guy. He's a really good friend. We go there often. Um, you know, he, he has all sorts of animals, but what he does, in my opinion, really well is the rehabilitation of native um, animals in need that, you know, people drop them off all the time. Right. So, yeah, it, it, that's a cool aspect. People can come to your private, it is a private facility, correct? Yeah, it's not open to the public. It's, it's, it is my, you know, it's my weird turtle dork, you know, area um that if 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 i have time and if you show interest and you want to come you come there's no entry fee there's no you know there's no there's no money involved in that if you want to come and learn that's great if you want to bring a group of kids that's great um if we can work it out uh, no admission there's no you know it's it's very separate it's hard to explain to people but it's just the educational part of what i do just because that's kind of who i am versus this wasn't really designed to, to be an educational facility. Um, oftentimes people arrive and they're like, oh, I went to Moorcock Conservation Foundation. Well, the foundation's just kind of a thing that's out there, you know, uh, with the board of directors and it's a funding machine and an education opportunity. But this place, you know, brick and mortars is not actually a foundation. It's, a, it's definitely one of the cleanest and best maintained collections, even if it's not the biggest that I've ever seen. And I think, Michael and Jason would definitely agree with that. Well, uh, it's something that makes me proud. And um, in order for anyone to come, I want I want it to be clean. I want it to be organized. It stays functionally clean. It stays working clean. But you guys know, you know, you clean water. There's someone poops in it. You know, they feed some whatever food. Uh, they drag it around. You know, so there's always, you know, I have a colony of house geckos that live in here and kind of poop on things. I, I, you know, and I'm fine with them living here that help control whatever insects might come in. Um, but overall, yeah, people actually walk in. Uh, it has to look a certain way. Um, you know, I want to be proud of it. But so thank you. Yeah, it it, it definitely is. I, I can I agree with that. Certainly, having visited a lot of different facilities, your facility is top notch. And it, it, I, it honestly, you know that it's really clean when you as a person don't feel presentable enough to be there. Last time we were we came, uh, we we had slept in a, a in a car at Cracker Barrel in Palm Beach for about three hours the night before, and uh, it was a little bit rough. But uh, that, that's how you know it's a nice facility because we came in. It's like all right, we need to leave because we're not <laughs> clean enough to match this. That was a rough visit. I, I was like, oh, my God, you guys are not even really like I'm I'm saying all the wrong things. You're not interested. You know, your your first visit here, it's, I think it was more than a year ago. It was during the winter. Um, I remember being really excited for you to come because I wanted to get your perspective on a private keeper, you know, and, and what what you kind of felt walking through and, and seeing the different animals kept in an artificial way. You know, I have baby turtles in, in tubs with water and fake plants, you know, that's so far away from nature. But it's offering them what they need right now. And it's offering them a chance to, you know, get seen by people and talk about, a, a, you know, a pretty good collection. 
that was interesting to hear your perspective. You you couldn't have been nicer. I mean, I, yeah, I I try to be honest. I think that it's uh, it, it's an interesting topic because as humans, we have such a monopoly over a lot of different habitats and species, and it becomes a question of is what is captive keeping useful, and is it contributing to the long-term persistence of populations of species in the wild. I think for well-meaning people that keep turtles, that's sort of the goal. And it, it may not be directly contributing, but I think that all the support that those the turtles can get is is a good thing. And those those animals could be in a lot worse hands. And so to provide to give them a life that that's uh, that's optimal is I think that in itself is something that's that you should be proud of and, and that, that makes sense. Yeah, no, thank you. And, and a lot of that I would say comes from relationships with, you know, again, Mark McCarthy, you started on the Egyptians. Um, he does a great job with it. Yeah, right. And, and I mean, that that's an interesting species in itself. Those ones are really exciting when you see them there. And they've got kind of an interesting history. There are probably some left in the wild, but sort of in effect, functionally extinct. And you're working with those. Maybe you can tell us a bit more about what your long-term goals are. You know, I, I I don't always think of it as short-term or long-term goals. I think of what, what works. I will say when they were listed with the ESA, it did cause me a little bit of pause because I want to be responsible and breathe animals yeah. that I know will have a future and and be respected and end up in good hands and by uh, the law changing where they can't leave the state um, you know it changed things a little bit so I, I think just breed as many as naturally want to happen I'm not going to push it I'm not going to force it or, or try to grow them fast if they breed that's great if uh, luckily they're really small as you know and they're easy to care for um, you know when you understand it I've had some good luck so I just keep, you know, if I have a bunch of them, I have a bunch of them. And, and if I have to give them away to help, then I'll give them away. You know, I don't, I, I luckily I have a job uh, that helps fund this. So I'm not relying on this as, as a source of income. So I guess just as long as I'm able to do it well, um, I'll keep going with it. And I'd, I'd like to say that's one other thing I've learned. Um, you know, it's so easy to get caught up in, in either trends or pressure from other keepers and people. Um, and I, I've learned, and sometimes I have to learn to keep the animals that I know I can do well with and that actually interest me. And, you know, I'm gonna pick on Anthony Pirlioni. He'll approach me with different opportunities to get different species. And I'll, um, I'm quick to always say no, you know, like I have, I have plenty, I have, I want to make sure I, it's manageable and when I feel overwhelmed and I feel like this is becoming a ball and chain, then I find spots for animals, you know, and, and one of the things I've been good at, I know I'm jumping top, is having young animals sent and raise and then send them back. So, you know, in one way, I'm taking a little bit the pressure off some owners and keepers to, you know, get them through the more sensitive periods, but I, I like raising babies. And once they reach an area where they're outgrowing what I feel is appropriate, then they go back. So it's kind of all over the place. Sorry. I think, yeah, it, it makes sense. It's uh, it's good to have someone that, 
the other thing I've noticed when we were there is that you seem to know the personalities of all your turtles really well. And, and you have kind of an inclination to understand the individuals. Maybe you could speak to that a bit. There, you know, it's all food driven, really. Not, not all. A lot of it is comfort. A lot of it is food, like the Spangler Eye, which are just complete clowns. Um, I'm really careful what I feed them. And I actually don't feed them often. But when I have a group of people come, I'm going to feed them worms. Do they all the time? No. But people come, I'm going to pull out the worms. It's just part of what's interesting. And it's clearly something they also enjoy. It's not a bad food. Uh, so they, or if I spend, if I start doing too many projects out here, every Spangler, I think I've eight of them, 10 actually, all uh, are watching through the glass, you know, watching every move. So it, it's a little bit funny when people come and they're not used to it. They're like, there's all these eyes on me. And the Egyptians, you know, they want to eat in the morning. Everyone has kind of a routine. A lot of it is food or habit. Pancakes come out early or late. You know, there's no point feeding some of the animals in the middle of the day. They're just not, they're just, it's a waste. So uh, you just kind of know what works and, and their different temperaments. Um, so yeah, I mean, they, they all have different personalities, but a lot of it is them just being reptiles and, you know, either thermoregulating or eating. And I'm not going to say they follow me around like a cat. Right. That, something, maybe we could jump back really quick to something you said earlier. Uh, <clears throat> that this isn't your career, uh, but your career is working with uh, horse training and such. And, and uh, I'm, I don't know about that area as much as, as you would. But uh, it's interesting to me because there, there's quite a few people that we've talked to that turtle work is not their primary profession. Uh, curious how that career has shaped your view of conservation and how it supports your ability to do conservation work. It's a, it's a, that's a, a slippery slope. Uh, I wear many hats in, a, in, a, in an average day. As a, as a, as a compassionate human, or I think I identify as that most of the time, you know, the, the training to show and compete really is a question mark. The environmental impact is a question mark for me. Um, so there, there's that one component to the horse industry that um, I'm never I'm never 100% confident that we're, I'm doing it well enough. Uh, with that said, the compassionate humanitarian part of it, when I watch what that does for, it's going to sound sexist, but mostly young girls, you know, the, the sense of... Um, accomplishment and confidence and freedom um, that they get and uh, by learning to control an animal and actually go over jumps with an animal and then actually compete against their peers is a real life-changing experience and um, so it's definitely a balancing uh, but with that said I think that's why the conservation and the or the foundation part really was so important for me to feel more whole. Um, and as I touched on earlier, I'm not afraid to admit, I talked to a sports psychologist, a woman that rode, and um, instead I was involved with different foundations and different governance of our sport. And, and for a lot of reasons uh, that changed. Um, so we started this foundation and I was able to, you know, now, I actually, I, I'd like to say one thing, the facility we work out of, which you guys have seen, 
has a 15 acre pond and a track around it and has a lot of wildlife. So I try to incorporate that, you know, and everything has to be age appropriate, whether it's, it's different visitors here or different age of students and different abilities. You know, if you have a three or four or five year old, you, it's a different story than a 12 year old, for instance, they're not going to care about, you know, different types of birds and species of butterflies and stuff, but depends on your audience. You can incorporate a lot of natural education and natural wildlife and, and you can get into, especially in Florida, what's native, what's not native, what's, what's invasive, what's dangerous, what is just something we've all lived with. Um, so again, that's a long, broad answer. But the, the, my career and living in South Florida and the adventure of the foundation has opened up a different way of looking at the world. And I try to incorporate more than just riding to, uh, to my career. I wanted to touch on something you said earlier about just knowing your individual animals and like having a smaller amount of them. You can actually, it's not like you're collecting Pokemon cards or something. Like it gets really out of hand with some keepers and it's, I, I don't know, like you have a smaller amount of animals and really give them everything they need, give them all the attention and, and get to know them. It's, it's just way more, not only is it better for them, but it's just more meaningful for you too. Like that's what I yeah. think. I've, I've had that experience, whether it's horses or I raised a bunch of birds before. And when you have too many, it just takes away. Um, you know, you, you can't, it literally is a ball and chain. And as you said, I want to be able to have it more, uh, you know, closed and intimate where I, where I understand the animals and I can do it well. And there's, there's this, you know, mentality that more is great and have more, own more, more money, more everything. But really, the more you have, the more uh, stress. And, and it, I'm not as happy when, I, when I'm overwhelmed. I can't do it well enough for the animal. And if I'm not happy, I don't know how they can be happy. So moderation is key. And I think that's a, <clears throat> I was going to say it's a maturity thing, but I think it's just a self-realization thing when you're in too deep you just have to take a step back and it's it would be very very easy for all of us um to end up with too many animals too many responsibility too many things you know we're all likable we all have friends we all have people that are trying to share with us and give us stuff yeah uh, and sometimes you have to be a little bit strong and say no i'm really sorry you know nothing personal it's just not working i don't think it's it's the direction i'm headed right now one thing you have highlighted sort of uh, with the idea of the foundation is uh, this idea that there are a lot of people that have come to help build your place and it requires a team. Maybe you could uh, talk about some of the, the different people that have, have uh, sort of contributed to building MCF to what it is today. Really, uh, it, it just starts with a, a small core group of people, you know, a relationship. Um, you know, keepers that have more experience. I went and visited Ralph Tills. You know, it, Ralph's funny. He wouldn't let me have Egyptians until I went there and met him and looked at his facility, and which is great. You know, I love that. It was a pain in the uh, butt, but, um, you know, I made it work. And, you know, different uh, facilities. You know, I went to Palm Beach Zoo. I went to, um, there's this crazy thing, Line Country Safari near me. You know, it's five minutes away. I went there. Um, just different places to make sure I could do it well. The inside, uh, I knew enough to do it kind of my way. Although one funny story, I had a bunch of uh, <clears throat> Geomita japonica and I 
brought in a bunch of debris from outside and some leaves, some sticks, some, you know, just different stumps and made these really cool enclosures. And about six weeks later, I was infested with roaches in that enclosure, which for sure, I mean, I brought them in. And although it looked great, it was, it was a mess. So I had to kind of learn, um, you know, you can do it a little more carefully. Uh, but as far as the outside stuff, we, we did have to have professional people do, you know, the fencing. There's a great guy that does zoo enclosures. Uh, he did where the spider turtles live, which you guys saw. Um, he also did where the, I have a very small group of um, domestic cats that live in a catio outside. Uh, he did that. But as far as like the ponds and some of the other, uh, one other building side, I had, I've developed good relationships with like Greg Brashear and Tanner Serpa and Dan, the crazy turtle man. And, uh, you know, I like it when they come in video and, um, you know, kind of reach a broader audience than I can reach here. Uh, it, it just kind of got me thinking and I was able to put a, week together where Tanner Serpa and Greg Brashear and Dan came down and installed a um, snapping turtle pond. And they filmed the process and we had a great time. We went out to the Everglades, we looked for pythons, we traveled around and we just really enjoyed each other's company and, and made something which I think is beautiful when people come or when people come to film that they can, you know, understand the backstory. So again, long answer, but it, this adventure has has introduced me to so many people and um you know that especially the youtube stuff a lot of people know who i am i go in pet stores now and people ask if i'm charlie which is a little weird and one funny story i'm i'm, I'm fairly well known at the horse shows just because i've been here forever and i, I teach a variety of children that are kind of well known um but one father came up to me and said are you charlie moorcroft and i'm like, yeah I'm, you know sure i am i'm here at the horse show and he said, are you the turtle guy? And that was like the biggest compliment that he wasn't asking if I was the dumb horse trainer, Charlie, but if I was the turtle guy that he saw on YouTube. So kind of a small world, really. That's it's cool that those spread so much. It's uh, it's a cool thing. The, the people is something that's kind of a fun aspect of uh, turtle work in general is getting to know different personalities. When I, when I spent time in Madagascar and uh, Belize now, I, you get to meet a lot of different personalities all over and in the United States, of course, but there's such a diverse range of, of, uh, people interested in turtles and it sort of makes everything a lot more interesting. You get a lot of good personalities and good stories. Oh, for sure. <clears throat> One of the most influential people, and, and I can't even tell you why is that influential just because I don't know, I, I, he was just an important, amazing human to me, was uh, a really good friend named Fred um, Grunwald. And he he was just an amazing keeper, a really old Florida reptile guy who sadly passed away a few years ago. And he he just made you realize, just you be you. Like, do what works for you. Don't care what anyone else says or thinks or does or expects. If you like working with an animal, work with an animal. If you don't, don't. Um, but I met so many amazing people there. And a lot of people, I don't know if you guys know, but a lot of people would go there and and film and kind of, you know, use his facility as just a, a hangout, 
Like I would, no matter who you are or what your background was or what differences you had, when you walked down his driveway, you, you just were a person and you were equal and there was no drama, no bull crap, no anything. So I, uh, I'll never be able to have that type of place here just because of career and, you know, privacy and things. But, but I miss that sense of community where all different walks of life, um, you know, just showed up and everyone was on the, a level, even playing field. And, you know, you just had a common, I don't know, common thread. When, yeah, when, when you're united by a common interest, a lot of the, the things, uh, that, that are sort of bad get th those screens go down and it, it's, uh, it unites a lot of different people from different walks of life. It's, it, it's a cool thing that, that I've noticed with, with turtles and just any common interest that people have for the most part. Yeah. But, that's part of, you know, I'm not going to lie. We have a bunch of whack jobs down here and we have a bunch of professional YouTubers and some legit, some fake stuff. Some are all sensationalized, but it's like everyone had immunity when you went there and you, you just checked it at the curb and walked up and had respect for, for the common interest of, of animals and Fred and, um, you know, away you went. And, and, uh, that, that was a good lesson. It was a good life lesson for me to, to just be able to experience that. And I've maintained a lot of really good friendships and relationships, uh, because of, of meeting people at Fred's and because of the foundation and because of the YouTube, you know, and I've gotten some pushback from people about some of the people who have filmed here and things. And really it, it reaches a broader audience than I could ever do. So I, I don't see any harm in that. Right. I I once saw Shaq's daughter get sprayed by Mrs. Kipling from Jesse, the monitor lizard. Um, that that's that was kind of something that stood out to me and kind of a random comment, but it, it leads into what, what I'm going to ask. I'm curious, as you've mentioned, there are a lot of really interesting personalities in South Florida and a lot of them have come to your place. Are there any really interesting or silly stories that come to mind? Well, I, I know there are, but what are the, what are the top ones that we need to hear? That, that, that I'm going to be careful with. Um, I will, a uh, Tanner Serpa, who is just, I don't know, he's like in you guys' league. He's so smart and so he's just amazing and creative and confident. And he's just, he's an amazing human. Uh, but what people don't realize, he's the biggest goofball, total dork. And I don't even care that I'm saying that. And we have so many eggs and so many bloopers. Like we were just crying, laughing the whole time. I mean, he's like lying in, in the garage floor, just laughing and jumping around and dancing and dropping stuff. And when he was, when he did a, a tank for Everglades uh, mud turtles. I mean, the place was trash in there. Just, you know, grab this, drop, you know, we, we kept changing the angle of the camera because it was mud on the floor and stuff. It was, uh, it was just a great adventure in just being a human and, and being a goofball and just letting your guard down and not always what you see is what you get but there's no real bad stories you know there's no there's no drama the, the i'll say the worst story of fred was um i happened to at one point do a tv show and somehow we all went over to fred's and we filmed an episode for hgtv it was just a you know 30 second clip but uh brian baumler's father 
decided somehow to lean over this chain link fence and feed the crocodile. And it jumped up and almost got him. And uh, that actually aired. Uh, but that, that was a little bit of a you know hairy moment when um, things could have gone a little bit south, but, but it ended up being okay. But just, you know, normal stuff you guys would know. You know, I'm yeah. around, you know, speeding around. Oh, trespassing to look at different bodies of water for animals. I mean, it's all in a good place fun. Yeah, that, there's a lot of fun stuff. It's always a different experience. At least the two times I've been to your place, it's it's always been cool because there's something different going on. Uh, th you mentioned the the Everglades mud turtles. Maybe you could tell us a bit more about those. I I I don't know how much people know, but I like small animals. I think they're easier to manage. Um, you know, I'm not one who wants Galapagos or Aldabras or definitely not uh, um, Salcatas. And, you know, the mud turtles are pretty common here. There's a, a group from the Everglades that just get eradicated by crows and cars. And there's some friends that have driven by and seen, you know, animals that are, you know, moments from being killed by crows or, uh, dead on the road, females trying to just cross and lay eggs that they've taken the eggs from. So there's a small group of animals that are really rescues. I, I'm not one to say, oh, let's go set traps and pull wild animals and, you know, jam them into captivity. But I am willing to, uh, you know, kind of look at it through a different lens when a crow is, you know, two pecks away from taking an animal's life and you're able to save that animal or get eggs. Um, you know, I don't, I don't mind that. Uh, another friend was uh, driving around and a crow dropped a tiny hatchling and smashed it into the road, you know, and that one came home and got raised up and, and um, you know, released onto private property and stuff. We're, we're not just out pulling animals from the wild and, you know, selling them. So I do have a, a group of Everglades mud turtles, which are really, really cool and they're different colors and tiny. And obviously you guys know a captive bred animal is so much calmer. Um, you know, it's all they know is is captivity. So they end up eating better, you know, parasites, diseases, all of that are, are less of a worry. And um, I don't want to be the guy that has wild caught animals here. So I do have a small group. I have some eggs hatching. I have a little hatchling, which is tiny. And Tanner came and <clears throat> tried to replicate, you know, really the Everglades. I bought on Etsy some Cypress knees and we went and got some Florida limestone and um, study different native plants or local plants. I'd say some aren't native any, or some are native now, but weren't. Uh, but we made what was really like an Everglades habitat for one, which is, you know, first thing you see when you walk in my garage. It's a, it's a cool habitat. Yeah, it's a, the whole cypress knee that was added in there. It's, it's real well done. I mean, it, it makes sense, but it was cool to see that. Uh, this probably leads into the next thing. I'm I'm curious your perspective on this. What what do you think the best pet turtle is? Depends. You know, I think tortoises are easier than turtles. You know, I don't I don't honestly think they make great pets. They're not. Um, it depends what your goal is. If you want to have something in a really cool enclosure that's naturalistic and you know like a uh, you know, terrarium type, then I, I would say something like a Spangler, I would be an amazing pet. Um, you know, if you want something big and kind of clumsy and that you're able to care for, you know, maybe a bigger, you know, tortoise. Uh, 
I think tiny little stink pot mud turtles make great pets because you can house them appropriately indoors and you know they're they're eat different variety of foods and stuff so it all depends what your goal is but they're not you know the, these are reptiles they're not warm and fuzzy you know you guys obviously know that um and i don't pretend that they're anything other than they are i mean these are reptiles and and yeah the cherry heads especially are my pets but i expect them to be cherry heads i don't expect them to be anything more so really captive small um and something that you know it it, it might outlive you so in my case i have a will and these animals are in it and you know I, i'm always careful what i add because it has to make sense long term short term and long term yeah i feel like i feel like large aquatic turtles are some of the worst like pet species somebody yeah. could take like someone comes home with a big soft or even a slider is just way more than what someone an average you know little kid is going to be able to keep or deal with in a tank or a tub yeah no it's it's uh you know i love painted turtles i think they're awesome southern painted turtles are are beautiful to me they're not as beautiful as some of the others but uh, i like them i would encourage people to have that you know if, if the question is spend a little bit more money and you guys all know this spend a little bit more money now going in or get a yellow belly or red eared uh which is cheaper but in the long or a, you can get a florida soft shell here for 20 bucks which i would never do um you know invest now in something that's going to last longer otherwise you're just disappointed and also if you pay a little bit more you're probably going to take better care of it um you know when something costs nothing it might not have a value to you and when it outgrows your area or your interest or your kids interest you know it, it doesn't have a value you just are quick to in in our case in south florida just throw it in a canal or a pond and and that happens i know we're going sideways here but that happens with tortoises you know i have a rescued cherry head that i'm pretty sure was just put in a canal and they're like well it's a turtle like see you later go swim on so it's uh you know yeah. all stems back to education you know study know what's going to work for you long term know what's interesting you know some animals box turtles eat a variety of foods you know uh, hermans is going to eat a lot less options that depends what your goal is really yeah when you really look at the biology of certain species like sliders and, and larger river turtles like jack was saying it's I mean, some of those species will move over a mile at, at times, and they, they, they frequently need, I mean, home range is going to be on the range of hundreds of meters. They need a lot of space. If you can provide that, they're rewarding. But if not, it's uh, sort of go with something else. I think what you said about box turtles are some of the some of the best. I would recommend box turtles just from my own experience. That's not as much, I don't have as much turtle keeping experience as you, but just, just how rewarding and easy the eastern box turtles are to keep up up north it's like i would recommend that over almost anything i have sulcatas and they're like livestock they destroy the yard they have these massive burrows like they're, they're not i wouldn't recommend them to anybody <laughs> yeah i try not to be judgy but i know uh i, I wouldn't uh raise sulcatas i wouldn't hatch them i wouldn't breed them but that's just me you know and i'm gonna do me you guys do you um box turtles i would recommend chinese box turtles you know they're they're beautiful uh they're not maybe as individual looking as some of the american box turtles but they're awesome and they can probably live outside in most areas i know people in new york have them outside anthony has them outside 
Um, they're really cool. They're personable. They follow you around. I mean, th those guys are, are amazing. So I would, and they're, you know, they kind of check the conservation box also. This guy was biting my toes. I'm in flip-flops living in Florida. So this guy, uh, one of the males. Very heads. This is Dale. Dale? So he's going to go back. He's going to go back to the ladies and not my foot, I hope. When uh, when you talk about keeping things, Florida's – there's a lot of controversy around some of the, the newer regulations and how it's monitored. Uh, are there any – is there anything that you'd like to see changed in, in terms of uh, regulations? I just don't – you know, uh, I live my life maybe a little bit on the challenging side, but there's what's right and there's what's wrong. And then there's what's legal and what's illegal. And those oftentimes are not the same. And, and I think they should be. And I think a lot of the laws were intended to, uh, you know, be that. But, um, you know, like the Florida box turtle law, I can legally go and take two poach, I'm going to use that word, from the wild and keep them as pets, two per household member. Um, but if I have, uh, someone who rescued one, um, you know, I have a bunch that have been through my hands that were captive bred. So if those were able to be raised and breed, I, I can't sell those babies. So I think there's rules that, that work and rules that don't work. I never really question, you know, I'm not allowed to touch a gopher tortoise and help it cross the road. Um, you know, I'm supposed to just watch it get hit by traffic. Yet, if I'm a developer, I can pay what's a hefty fine to basically, you know, just bury the, the um, burrows. So it's, it's either right or it's wrong. And I'm not sure a hefty fine, although that might work for the town or the government, uh, the animal didn't, isn't benefiting from that money. So again, there, there's a bunch you know, green iguanas, um, if I actually, it'll be cool if I see one, it's not quite warm enough yet. Um, but there's probably at one time, 50 green iguanas in my yard. And they're illegal. I can't touch them. I can't do anything. There was a point when you could catch them or keep them and get rid of them. And I think there were less um, in the wild. And then when they make something illegal, a lot of people, you know, not maybe me or us, but a lot of people just open the cages and set them free. Like, wow, you're now illegal, tegus and stuff. So I, I, I think that has a worse uh, environmental impact when when something is illegal, um, you know, and people just don't do the responsible thing. You know, we all know the whole snake story with Florida um, back a couple months ago, um, you know, that was just because the laws are all changing and and I'm not saying the average reptile keeper in Florida that does it for a job is an upstanding citizen. And I also think I talked to Anthony and Ralph Till, you know, uh, Daytona uh, reptile show is coming up next week. And I know Eric Good is speaking. I know that's controversial. And I know when people start commenting on that, it just reminds the world that not just Florida laws, but reptile keepers in Florida we're not very united and we're not very, uh, we don't look very smart as a group. So I'm not sure how, I guess I'm going somewhere with this, don't worry. I'm not sure as a as a group in Florida, how to really influence the government or FWC and get things changed when we just seem like, you know, crybabies that are worried about our finances. 
Yeah. Not I, what you expected. Sorry, but that's, you know, that's my two cents. It does seem like, uh, the, just in general, something that it seems like it's fairly consistent in a lot of different areas in life is that cost benefit analysis on a lot of regulations. Well, in, in sort of the, the area of law, it's definitely lacking. There's a lot of, uh, it, it seems like it's just sort of push and pull different camps really get deeply ingrained in, in a viewpoint and run with that. But I think just in general, if you had a, a, a more time to research, that, that's probably the research analytical side of me speaking. I, it's probably not uh, it's sort of, it doesn't make sense to do that. It'd be impossible to test everything empirically. But I feel like if you some of these regulations have good intention, but there isn't enough that goes into figuring out the costs associated with them. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, um, you know, and that, that's such a big can of worms, you know, we could get into whole politics and DC and lobbyists and, you know, PETA and the humane society and Greenpeace, all of that, you know, they're, they're, uh, it, it's unfortunate that uh, we can't really control their hidden agendas and their, you know, money and, and their marketing, how they set commercials out, you know, about getting, you're watching seals getting clubbed with, you know, <laughs> clubs and what that money really goes towards. You know, it's really, we're up against, you know, I like US ARC because I think they're smart and I think they give us a voice and I think they actually do their homework um, and understand what's really happening. But we're up against a lot of money and a lot of emotions from the average, you know, human. And I, I think that um, it's an uphill battle. You know, I worry long term. I've, I've thought about leaving Florida. I worry long term about what animals I can keep here. I don't want the government telling me what I can and can't do because I, I do it in a way that I'm, you know, I can sleep at night. I'm proud of. I'm not doing anything wrong. But uh, I wish I didn't have to have permits. And I wish the people issuing the permits and the people, uh, you know, involved actually had more experience. You know, I think Greg, we can pick on him. I think Greg will tell you when he's out in the field or dealing with some people in the government, they, you know, he's oftentimes educating them as to what's happening. Um, yeah. So uh, I don't know that that's a can of worms. And um, I wish I had the answer, but don't really know. I'm just walking around outside. Hopefully that's all right. I think the uphill battle is kind of the story of turtle conservation, like every aspect of it, like on all fronts. It's like you're facing these threats that are, and more powerful, like there's the political things, there's just the straight up uh, desire and for, for turtles overseas and, and, and all of that. It's just, just like, how the hell are we supposed to beat any of this? Like, realistically. Yeah. And, and it, you know, you can be defeated by it or you can say, look, here, here's the level at which I can make a difference. And, you know, that's where I try to focus. You know, I try and yeah, keep, yeah. you know, my uh, areas clean. I try to encourage as many people like you guys. I, I really enjoyed having you guys over and kind of showing you the town, and having conversation. You know, that's I can give back and involve people and get some crazy YouTubers here to get the story out. Um, you know, it's, you can only do what you can do and, and yeah. I don't beat it by it. I'm aware of it. And I think it's pretty dark, but, uh, just try and 
you know, keep my head up and keep going and do it as well as I can and work with animals that I know, you know, I, I can make a difference with and, and do well by. I don't want to work with animals that, that it's a struggle or I'm questioning whether they're happy or whether I'm able to do it. You know, I had these crazy albino sapping turtles and that was a bit of a drag. And it, it really was interesting to people when they came that it was a snapping turtle and it was albino. But at the end of the day, um, you know, it wasn't working and the animals weren't happy. So I, I made the choice to, you know, send them to someone else who could do it better than me. And, you know, that's an ego thing, too. You just have to say, wow, it's not it's not working. It's OK. Nothing personal. And you're not letting anyone down. You're just doing what's what's right for everyone. Especially the animal. The animals have to come first. To a degree. You know, I'm not going to say, oh, I'll just let everything loose because they're going to come first. You know, that's not responsible either. But you guys, you know what I mean. Yeah. yeah. Right. Do you think that captive breeding of, of turtles and tortoises takes pressures off of wild populations? <laughs> I, I don't I don't think I don't know if really anyone has the answer to this question. It, it seems kind of case specific, but I'm curious what you think. I, I would. I would use spotted turtles as that example. Um, are people going to always be stealing spotted turtles? Yeah, sadly, uh, I was up in Connecticut a few weeks ago and spent the day with Anthony, and we went to this one uh, old bog that had snapping turtles, or uh, sorry, spotted turtles, and you could see areas where people were drag, you know, dragging nets out, um, you know, dip netting, and uh, you know, and I know there's rumors that animals have been poached out of that area. But with that said, I was able to send 25 spotted turtles out this year that were hatched here and raised here. So I think that's making a difference. You know, if 25 can go on to, you know, be in the pet trade or in keepers hands, hopefully that's less that are going to be taken from the wild. And I don't even care if they're free. You know, it's not about the money. It's about breeding them in a way that I know they're healthy, I know they're happy. There's, you know, just getting them out there for the public. So I think that does make a difference. Right. If you've got effective conservation too, it, it, it gets complicated, I think, at a global scale, like the stuff that, that we were dealing with in Madagascar. And, and when you're trying to protect species where there isn't really a legal system there, if you've got protection like you have in the United States, forest species and captive breeding. I think that it, that those two things work hand in hand uh, if the yeah. enforcement's there. But uh, it, so, so yeah, I, I think that in, that's, that's a good example where obviously you can't fix the whole problem, but there is probably some level of swamping effect of getting more turtles out there that are sourced uh, responsibly. Yeah, I mean, that's probably the best example, you know. I, again, I have I have radiated. Uh, I like them. I was always cautious to get them because of their size and they're in a little bit of a challenge to breed and they grow slowly and I just wanted to be responsible. But I think they're part of a good story and, and they're beautiful. And it, it's another interesting, uh, you know, type of animal to share with people. Um, but having them here isn't going to change anything in Madagascar. You know, but locally, I think, I think as you said, uh, you know, if I can breed some southern painted turtles, you know, they're they're relatively inexpensive and, um, you know, they'll be captive bred and they'll be healthy and I'll just give them to friends or give them to people. Um, 
hopefully people aren't out there taking them from the wild, which there's no financial incentive. If we can produce enough and, and captivity in the pet trade, then people shouldn't be needing to go, you know, poach animals from the wild. So that's one small difference, I think, but not globally. Right. That that's well said. I think it's uh, it, it's a good conservation philosophy, and it's it's tough. I mean, it, it, it no one can make all the difference, so we have to have a lot of different people in different areas. Um, but so you're you're in South Florida, and it's we've touched on this a little bit. But you've also done some trips to other facilities and, and even into the Everglades region. Here's what your, your experience and maybe how that influences how you keep things. I guess efficiency and flow and space. Um, you know, I look at some species and think, wow, they, they require more space than I'm able to give or wow, they are in a smaller area or more horizontal or more vertical, um, you know, different substrates like the Egyptian tortoises. My friends in Europe um, don't really like the whole crushed oyster shell, you know, chicken grit thing. And in our country, we, we really like that. Um, some people think, okay, well, let's go with more humid, more bark, more mulch for young ones. And as they reach maturity, then you can go to a dryer area, which I've kind of adopted a lot of it, but, but you learn something from everything. Um, you know, I, I learn in South Florida what really can live here that doesn't belong here, you know, from crazy bufu toads, which I don't like, to uh, Cuban tree frogs, which are everywhere. Uh, you know, it, it, I've learned a lot about what's invasive in Florida, but a lot of, you know, there's this old stupid saying that horse has already left the barn. You, know, you can make green iguanas illegal. It's not going to change anything. They're gone. You know, you can, Placostomus are in every canal I go in, and so are snakeheads. You know, so when people go fishing and they take, okay, well, I'm going to take the snakeheads out and the Placostomus out, it's not really, it's a drop in the bucket. It's not really changing anything. So I learn a lot about that. I like talking to old-time Floridian people, uh, Floridians, Florida people who, <clears throat> You know, grew up here. I've watched it change since I've been in this town. There are roads that used to be barbed wire, cattle, and lots of really lush green uh, little scrub forests are now box stores and restaurants and paved, you know, six-lane roads. So I know, um, you know, Florida's becoming crazy, and everything is getting pushed out. Uh, so I don't know. I guess Florida's one area I haven't really learned how to take better care of the animals from living here but i've just watched what the impact of man on uh native and non-native species and sometimes the non-native thrive really with the more more influence you know and the more we do to the environment sometimes the non-natives have a, a you know better area but as far as traveling to other stuff you know i love traveling uh i went to the ttpg where i first met you and went to see andrew's place and I got a lot of really great ideas. I'm always like studying and kind of taking mental notes, how to how to look at things from a different lens. And one thing I try and challenge myself, whether it's at the the horse barn where I, I work or here, I try and walk through like I've never been. Like what's the first instinct? Like if I've never been here and I come in, what's the first thing I see? What what works well, what needs to be tweaked or changed? And it, it's always a process. I mean, this place is ever changing. Um, I I talked to Anthony years ago about, you know, when you have an art gallery, you have a different 
showing all the time. You have different animals or, or different art coming and going. And I wanted to do a little bit of that. And our compromise was getting different young animals that we raise through the winter when it's busy here and then sending them on their way. So we try and change it up to keep it interesting. But everywhere you go, you, you take away something, even if it's, uh, you know, the fact that you're doing it well the way you have it, or I want to change something, or thank God I don't want to do it that way. So I don't know if that helps, but that's, uh, you know, you, you're affected positively, neutral, or negatively by every experience. The, you mentioned the uh, non-native species. I'm curious what kind of effects you see there, because you're pretty much in the capital for, for that. I, I don't, I'm not, honestly, I'm not smart enough to know the true effects. I'm not going to tell you that I know pythons are decimating different things out here. Um, I know the bufu toads are everywhere. I know uh, they're killing dogs, they're eating native animals. Um, I know the feral cats too everywhere uh, are a problem, but they're actually feeding the coyotes. The coyotes are making a comeback and people are freaking out about the coyotes, but the coyotes are killing a lot of feral cats. So it's, it's, a, it's just a weird dynamic. There's a bunch of feral parrots everywhere, uh, Quaker parakeets, which live in the power lines. Um, you know, they fly over our yards, you know, I'd say several times a day, different colonies in Miami. There's huge uh, populations. I've been to uh, my friend Mike Lorette's facility, and they have this huge uh, stand where they feed the wild macaws in Miami, and they come out, feral macaws. Now they're wild now, but um, so some of it isn't causing damage. I don't really think the green iguanas are causing as much damage as people think. They're worried about burrowing. I guess they burrowed under a bridge and they caused some question mark about road safety. Um, I think they're eating a lot of uh, things that I grow. You know, they eat the hibiscus, they eat the mulberry. Um, if I put out a lot of greens for the redfoots, I know I'm feeding the iguanas. It just goes hand in hand. The iguanas actually like Missouri, believe it or not. They would like that all the time. So I kind of guard when I feed, I guard what I'm feeding to keep the non-native stuff out. So I see it firsthand, but again, I don't think it's, you know, it's not so dangerous other than the bufu toads and the cuban tree frogs they also have the cuban anoles the brown ones which are out competing the native green anoles which i don't know if you guys saw that but yeah. i also have i think i told you in my garage i have a colony of house geckos which just run all over the place at night i'll go out there and they're just on top of the glass they're you know let's say there's probably 20 that live in the garage am i going to do anything about it no no they're just there so some you learn to live with some you worry about it's interesting. I, a, a lot of, uh, I've, I've researched this a bit and you look at through papers and people are doing all these simulations to figure out the potential impacts, but talking to people like you that are living in the epicenter of that issue gets you more information in a lot of ways than you'd get from some computer simulation. So it's interesting to hear perspective. Yeah. And again, I can only speak on my personal experience, but you know, I know friends farther south, you know, Florida is a long state and my friends in Jacksonville keep animals very differently than people in Miami. Um, you know, there's a lot of different weather, a lot of different growing climates here. So as you go closer to Miami or south of Miami and you, you know, kind of branch out towards the Everglades, that's really the wild west down here. And the Everglades does 
actually come up the middle of the state and actually touch our town of Wellington where you guys went. Um, it's the very tip of it, but it's actually Everglades and it's basically a highway for pythons and alligators and, you know, animals that enjoy that environment. So they, they uh, have unlimited place to explore and expand. South Florida is like a totally different animal than when I'm, I'm now living in Gainesville and there's ne nowhere near as many invasive species, plants, reptiles, animal, animals, like, you know, things like that. But I mean, you hardly even see plecos or anything in the rivers up here. I think I've seen one in the Santa Fe River the entire time I've been here. Uh, but that one, I visited you down there. It's like every, most of what you saw was non-native creatures just all over the place. It was pretty rough. Just the, the system of canals and the, the we built, I say we, they, whoever, I'm not a builder. Uh, people dug and excavated canals to get fill and they took the fill and they built house pads. So it, it made a better system for the water and it gave you material to build up where your house would be put for flooding. I mean, we live in, you know, we, we live in the Everglades. We live in a, I mean, we're in the middle of a swamp, frankly. Uh, so the, the canals are a great system for snakeheads, uh, you know, all these crazy cichlids, tilapia, and it's a real highway for them to go anywhere they want, and the pythons also. So, and, and plus we have Egyptian geese, which I think are really cool. I don't really think they're doing anything wrong. We have uh, black-breasted whistling ducks, um, all sorts of different birds, which kind of coexist with our native animals and, and migratory animals. But really, South Florida, as you say, um, it's easy to get around if you're a wild animal here, other than made, you know, major six-lane roads. Right. Uh, sort of changing the focus a bit, I'm uh, curious if, what kind of advice you would give to people uh, looking to provide the most natural habitats for turtles in captivity. What are the, some of the things that have worked for you? <clears throat> I guess just studying what temperatures really is a huge thing and humidity, um, slope and, uh, you know, depth of substrate and sparsity, whether you're desert, whether you're forest, whether you're tropical, you know, how much light, uh, really just doing your homework. And then, and then it doesn't have to be perfect, but it has to be within reason. And again, a lot of these captive animals, they never saw the wild. So you're, you're giving them your version of what you think works. And, and I think there's a lot of uh, playroom there to, to not get it exactly right. But I think it's up to us to, to do it in a way that the animal is happy and that we're you know, responsible and proud of what we're doing. So a lot of it is just research. Um, hopefully you're getting animals from people that do it well, that you like and respect and, you're, and are part of an organization um, you know, I'm not really a big fan of classified ads. I'd rather network and work with people. Um, the old uh, turtle forum and the tortoise forum were great tools to learn so much and everything you, you wrote was documented. And there were, you know, you had like a screen name or a weird name and stuff, but you, you still knew who you could trust and you could really research and ask questions and get help. And Facebook came along and changed that. Now Instagram changed that. Now there's, you know, TikTok and all that. So it's really hard to get back to some really good information, uh, the meat of it. Um, but I would go back and research the turtle and tortoise forums and 
join groups and ask really good questions. And it, it has to be realistic. You know, you, you can't say I'm going to buy a goldfish and not feed it and it's not going to outgrow the bowl. It's got to, it has to make sense in the end or the animal suffers and you're miserable and then you're just dumping it. Right. It, you also were, when we were there last time, you showed us the aquaponics setup you had. Uh, curious how that factors into how you keep things. I just like to look at different things and, and give examples. And I like challenges and I don't eat fish, but uh, the aquaponic system is a great way to raise tilapia or catfish or different animals. Uh, people do it with shellfish um, or crustaceans. Uh, I think it's a, a cool way in the wintertime. In the summertime here, we struggle with growing. I say everything grows. Tropical things grow year round and they actually slow down in the winter our northern vegetables like vegetable crops and food crops that we think of our more traditional northern european stuff struggles in the summer here it's just no relief from the heat so in the winter time starting october november when it cools down and then in through the winter i'm able to really grow lettuces you know herbs different things to feed some of the animals uh through the use of fish waste so it's kind of a, a good system. Plus I have a snail farm. You know, you've seen it all. There's a snail farm, there's isopod farm. I have a worm farm. So a lot of it is growing uh, the animals to, you know, kind of recycle and reuse. But aquaponics is cool. It's, it's definitely uh, something most people have not seen or heard of. Also noticed when, I, when we were there that you, it seems like with, with your outdoor setups, it's very diverse. With some of the indoor setups, it's, you keep things fairly simple and that's that's not a bad thing. I mean, it just minimizes the issues that you can have, but maybe you could speak to that just a bit. Yeah, I'll pick on Tanner. Tanner, who again is a really good friend and I, I we actually have no filters often like you guys are with me without being on a podcast. Uh, so Tanner basically looked in the Spangler enclosure and nicely told me that it looked like dog crap. And, uh, you know, jokingly, but really it, it is not, as you said, high tech. It's not ultra fancy. There's different areas like the outside cherry heads. I have hides from the sun and they're facing different directions. Um, they, you know, they're facing all different directions. Some are tighter, which sometimes they all huddle up and go in. Some are bigger and wider, some are longer, but I have, everything has options. And inside, same thing, the Egyptian tortoises, the females live in a colony. They have a lot of options. There's six of them there. There's four different big hides. Oftentimes they go together. Sometimes they spread out. So I, I want them to have options. Um, but do I want to make it so complicated? Uh, I had some pancake tortoises years ago, and I made it so incredibly complicated that they were climbing out and getting loose and flipping upside down. And, you know, I gave them basically a jungle gym in there. And then to go find one, I had to dismantle the whole thing. And then getting back to the Spangler Eye and, and the Japonica, I made it so complicated and intense that I was infested with roaches. So it, it has to, yeah. there's a fine line between what's functional and what's clean. Um, you know, it, it doesn't need to be ultra fancy and creative, but um, I like it to look natural. I like it to be, you know, diverse and have bioactive, you know, things growing in it. But what simple, kind of you know, simple is, there's nothing wrong with simple. But it's not sparse, you know, they're not living in an empty tote. What, right. What, what kind of substrates do you like to use? That one's a big topic. Uh, the Egyptians, the, the, the primary substrate is that oyster grit 
but I put uh, Reptibark uh, and different cocoa fiber mixed in it. Um, down here, cypress mulch is a huge thing. Um, I, I rely on that, but it's pretty chunky. It takes a lot, it holds moisture really well and it breaks down really slowly. So the cherry hedge that live inside and grow up are in a mix of Reptibark and cypress. And I keep it really, really deep and I keep the bottom pretty wet. Um, and the top dries out so they can burrow down and kind of reach humidity. Um, the one of the thing which is not substrate, but it's related. I was up at a guy named John Heidegger's place a couple of months ago, and he had like fake asparagus fern plants in and he misted that plant, the fake plant. And that there was so much mass to the fake plant that it, it kept moisture all day. So there was like a microclimate under it. And then he kept also deep substrate, which holds moisture. The top can dry out so you're not dealing with crud and rot, but the animal can kind of burrow down and make a scrape and get to the humidity. Um, the the Spangleri, it's a lot of uh, soil and some bark and a little bit of mulch on top and living in that are earthworms and isopods. So I just throw in a bunch of them and they just kind of all coexist. I did have some problems. When I first got Egyptian tortoises from Ralph Till, I had a big galvanized tub and I put about four inches of peat moss that I got from a big box store. And then on top, and I wet that. And then on top of that, I put about three or four inches of the coarse chicken grit, the oyster shell. And people call it coral, but it's really oyster shell. Um, and in the peat moss was, I don't know how, how or why, but there were so many ticks. I mean, you've been here, there's no ticks in my garage. But for some reason, these ticks came up through the peat moss. And when I studied it and Googled it and Googled ticks and peat moss, it said they're you know in there. Uh, I lost an animal that had 600 ticks on it. And I thought it was just hiding. I didn't bother. And the animals, I don't bother every day. I don't pull them all out, hold them, look at them, examine them. I'm out there regularly enough that I know if there's a situation, or so I thought. But in that case, it was a young, you know, tortoise. They hide a lot. Um, I was working a lot, and finally, when I went and said, "I haven't really seen one in a while," and I digged it out, I dug it out, and there were ticks all over it. So, just something to be aware of that you know you, you try and do it right, and you you make mistakes. So, substrate, different options, but it has to be easy to get and something that's kind of proven. And you can mix it up. I also use sphagnum moss um, for the when the cherry heads are first born, and I soak that in water and put that so that they can really burrow in easily. Um, and I put that under one hide and then keep one hide without it. So again, it's all about options and letting them kind of just naturally find what they want. So that's more important than how it looks. It has to be functional, and then you know I can decorate it best I can on top of being functional. Right. Yeah. Your, your dedication to the sort of all different aspects of keeping is, is admirable. Uh, and I think it's a lot of people can learn from what you have to say and, and your experience, because uh, you think about it in a lot of different uh, sort of different angles. So I, I think that's that's kind of what I'm taking from this is if, if you're keeping turtles and tortoises, you want to think about things from a lot of different angles and how how well you're replicating the natural habitat, uh, but also how realistic it is for the, the safety of the animal.
But uh, yeah, so it, well, I, we can start to wrap things up. And I, I think one of the, the last things that's not related to turtles 100%, but uh, MCF does work with more than just turtle groups. I, I was looking at this yesterday. Uh, there's some cool stuff that you're doing with uh, horses and, and other um, species. Maybe you could talk a bit about some of the non-turtle related work uh, that you support. Really, I, I try just to look at what's interesting to me to start and then what's interesting to other people. Not, not everyone is as passionate about turtles and tortoises as we are. Um, so when I go to talk about fundraising, um, you know, I want, I want people to realize it's, it's a broader reach. And again, locally, which is so easy because I have relationships with so many people here um, nationally and then even internationally. But, uh, you know, again, like lions and tigers and bears and elephants, the big, huge popular animals get so much awareness and so much funding. Um, and there's so many other animals that don't. And I, I like birds of prey. I think they're very interesting. Um, wolves, I think, are great. You know, there's studies that when you release wolves into different natural areas, how that trickles down. And over a certain amount of years, the whole geography changes and is healthier for all. So there, there's... People, I'm never going to have a wolf sanctuary or a wolf, you know, uh, you know, conservation. So there's a way to kind of look at it and make it as diverse as possible. I love salamanders. I love amphibians. We we supported them. We support people in, you know, South America. Um, there's the Jeffrey's Cats, the Feline Conservation Federation. Um, just, just all different. If it interests me and there's a way to give to a smaller group that's maybe doing better, um, you know, nobody wants to give money to us and then see it go to like the Sierra Club or whatever that is, where you look at their financials and there's millions and millions already sitting in their account. So we, we try and do some homework and, and I love recommendations. I love people reaching out and saying, here's what I'm thinking. Um, you know, would you consider uh, looking into this topic? Um, so we, we really word of mouth and we want to make it as broad as we can so that when we do go fundraising um you know again it, it, it's there's something interesting for everyone last thing i will say is this winter back to education which goes to a little bit of fundraising because i live a mile from the really international equestrian uh competition world equestrian um, or winter equestrian uh festival we we have access to so many people from all over the world and it's really popular. And I have different friends that have taken animals to uh, the horse show with me, you know, whether it's snakes and alligator, uh, we took a Galapagos tortoise. I took one of my skunks, uh, a couple of cherry heads just cause they're really cool looking. And we would just go and visit the horse show for a couple of hours and kind of listen to the animals. Like when the skunk was done, the skunk went home and, and, and we tried to do it well. And there's been some, uh, different evening, you know, events and celebrations that we've gone to with, with different groups of animals. But I, I pull in friends, you know, I, I don't have an alligator, for instance. I don't have all the cool, you know, sexy stuff that the kids are going to want to hold and touch. But one friend, um, Birds and Exotics of the World, does a great job. He's done birthday parties. I've introduced him to a ton of people. He'll bring different birds of prey, an alligator. Um, he has an alligator snapping turtle you know, all permitted, all legal, all on the up and up. And it's a great way for people to get up close and personal 
you know, and not have to get in the car and drive to my house or drive to McCarthy's. So it's a way, and that translates to, to fundraising also. I'm terrible at asking for money for me and for this. If I'm asking for money for something else, I'm, I'm pretty good at it. But when people come here and they're like, oh, can I make a donation to you? I would say, really, no, I don't, you know, we're not looking for donations for this. We're, we're looking to fund the foundation, which then funds, you know, huge, amazing things. I think I even tried to fund a couple of guys going to the TSA conference. So, you know, it's one way to give back. And, um, you know, we try and give to 501c3s. There's a guy, Jordan Janini, who's doing a conference in South Florida. Uh, we're trying to support that and all sorts of different things we've given to the turtle room. Um, so really, you no, know, I'd, I'd like to get to the point where we have opportunities for schools and classrooms to, uh, have endangered animals, you know, Reeves turtles, for instance, they're plenty in captivity. It's still an endangered animal. They could have that in their classroom. Um, you know, no one's going to say, oh, let's go take something from the wild and jam it in the classroom. That's not what we're talking about, but there's a way to have uh you know kids through the safety and structure of a classroom or a teacher responsible for the animals and get you know hands-on experience so something we're looking at down the road nice right i i was i was looking at uh one of the ones that stuck out to me was this equus survival trust uh <laughs> conserving a lot of horse diversity it, it seems like a lot of horses are in sort of bad places genetically and population wise it's kind of interesting that was another one that you're supporting that, that stuck out yeah. what well, either wild horses uh there's the cloud foundation which deals with bureau of land management horses um and also different organizations that are really trying to preserve the different breeds of horses that have been part of our heritage forever um, that hits home for a lot of people in my industry right That's pretty cool well, I think we can start to wrap up, though. We've got, like, one last thing that we uh, we like to ask it, unless anyone else has anything uh, we want to bring up. Um, have I bored you, know? you all sufficiently? Oh, no, I'm, I'm here. <laughs> I've enjoyed this. Yeah, it's been good. Uh, I, okay, I guess so. the last thing uh, that, that's sort of interesting to us is uh, for someone that's looking to make turtle conservation part of a career or a career, what, what kind of advice would you give? Uh, <clears throat> I don't know if I have any solid advice. I, I would actually defer to you guys for that. You know, there's work in the field, which I literally know nothing about. I don't, I haven't had the, the privilege of being out there doing as much as you guys and Greg and so many other amazing people have. I'm, I'm envious of that opportunity and maybe in my next lifetime I'll be able to, but, but right now I don't, I don't really have anything on that. And really, this didn't start out as a conservation, uh, you know, thing. It started out just as a collection, which kind of naturally headed that direction. But again, uh, it, it, this is not a moneymaker. This is not my this is not my job. Oftentimes, people see the animals as value. Um, I struggle with that. I mean, for sure, there's some value there, which we're all aware of. You can't not be. But that's not the, the motivating factor. So I think getting involved and, you know, TSA, Turtle Conservancy, getting involved wherever you are, whatever location, even locally, um, volunteering and, and realizing it's not a, 
you know, it's, it's not a money-making endeavor in my opinion. Right. That, that's good advice. We'll take yep. that. From yeah. um, all right. So at the end too, we like to do a little trivia. Uh, I'm out. I suck at that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, sorry. All right. You can edit that out. <laughs> well, that, that works. <laughs> all right. Well, we can, uh, We'll ask you some questions anyway. No, I, I'm kidding. No, I don't care. Try it. Try it. If I, 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 I'm excellent at making an ass out of myself. So if you give me an opportunity, I'll take it. Well, we don't need to do this. I mean, maybe you could ask us. We could make this a little different this time. If you've got non-turtle related questions about other groups of animals that you work with, this could be interesting. I don't know how well we'll do. No, no, go go with your way. I'm just trying to be funny. It was an epic fail, but that was, you know, it was an effort. Do it your All way. Right. Someone have a question? All right. Jason's got a question, I think. Jason, I've never even spoken with you. I've been here. <laughs> <laughs> he's, a real, he's a real talker. Yeah, he's a real, he's, he's pretty communicative now. I mean. Proof of life. All right. I mean, if Jason, I'll go. What year was the alligator snapping turtle split into three species? Oh my god! Pass, pass. Recently, recently. Just recently. I know Greg talked about that. Recently, First time. That's pretty good. Yeah. Twenty fourteen was the year. Nine years. See. Yeah. Twenty fourteen. Yep. Yeah. You're right. I just had something in my head. That's. Just... <laughs> All right, Jason. What do you have? <laughs> nothing coming out <laughs> is your audio working <laughs> i was wondering why i didn't hear his cat for like the entire well, surely you try to stump us with something then to... yeah yeah no 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 i can't i uh no i i can't be put on the spot you you know you have right. so many like unique animals that you have to have something patagonian mara <clears throat> yeah there you go it's the what largest rodent? Oh. Second, fifth, third, seventh, you pick. There we go. Multiple choice. Good, good. I would say the third largest rodent. <clears throat> One for Wyatt. <clears throat> what's, between, what's between them and the capybara? Well, Beavers. that's controversial. Either the porcupine or some people say the beaver. Oh yeah, <laughs> I've seen some huge ass beavers too. Like, yeah, I think so beavers. I would think, yeah, they, yeah, they, yeah, say they could be. It, uh, it's a uh, capybara and then porcupine, then, but I think beavers in there. So, yeah, I mean porcupines can get big, but beavers get absolutely massive. Porcupines kind of, you know, it's hard to know what's really happening under all the quills. Yeah, that's fair. I've got a, I've, well, Ken, do you have a question? <laughs> I guess, I guess silence means no. I've got, I've got a question. Uh, All right. According to the most recent checklist of turtles, uh, how many species of turtle are there? I actually That's don't, good. I have the, I, I have a range of plus or minus two. I, I think I know what the, <laughs> I'm going to call Lifeline. I'm going to call Wyatt and ask him to help me with this one. No, you're on your own, man. This is your question. 
Jason, here's your chance. I'm trying to figure out my question. Ken, anybody? I need help. I mean, I have a, I have a guess. I, I would say 300, 358, but I'm not sure how close. If we're going off the 2021 checklist, I might be off by a little bit there. So. All right, all right. Here's what we can do. I'm going to go next. 347. Let's all go and see who's closest. I want to say. I want to say. I'm sticking with 358. Yeah, I was going to say 350. Ken? (laughs) (laughs) Non-participating member? All right. He's just a little shy today. Shy? Jason, just say a number. Hold up fingers. Your audio is not working. That's the problem. (laughs) (laughs) I I I could actually tell. What number is that? I'm trying to figure it out. I think he said 351. 351. All right. We'll go with that. It's probably not. Well, I got to actually check because we're so close now. I I think it was 358, but it may be 356. I think Jack got it right. Okay. Probably. I mean, I would would yield to Jack's opinion on that. All right, Wyatt, what's your question? Um, I don't completely. All right, it's a good one, but it's kind of hard because I don't know the answer specifically. But I know you keep sliders, and you have some pretty interesting morphs. So, uh, how many species are how many species in the genus Trachomies are native to North America? That's a good one. How do you define North America, though? I I only uh, from so from Canada to uh, Panama. Oh, all right. Yeah. Six. No. Wrong. More than that? that? Is that the only guess? Anybody else want to try? Oh, you're asking everybody. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This goes to everybody. No, it's more than that. If you go down to Panama, geez. Yeah, because that Panama is the southmost tip of uh, North America. You go this way. Is it real? Oh, all right. And the Caribbeans are included here. I've got a guesstimate. Yeah, go ahead. Fifteen to sixteen. Yeah, it's about what I'm going with. Something like that. Yep, it is fifteen species. My answer was a little light. <laughs> ah. Ah, you're good. <laughs> All right. Well, we're, I think that's that's good. We got some trivia in. Uh, but uh, this was a fun one. Thanks for coming on, Charlie. Uh, it's been great to hear about your work. And you're doing a lot of really cool stuff with educating people. And I think all of us are – it's cool to see because we're – just kind of realize this now, but we're starting to get a little bit older where it's like there isn't another generation of people coming around. So it, it's uh, it's – you're doing the work to inspire that group. So it's, it's a really cool thing. Yeah. We love the work you do. It's great. Thanks. The one yep. thing I say is it's our job to replace ourselves in whatever yep. way that means. That's a good quote. Then uh, that's our, that's our, you know, one thing we should always have in the back of our mind. There so, you go. Cool. Thank you guys oh. so much. I hope I didn't uh, 
talk too much or hope I added something. I was worried about not being able to add something really useful, but hopefully there's something there you can pick from. No, that was no, good. That was good. Yeah, I like that. Cool. All right. We'll see All everyone right. on the next one. See ya.